Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And when the people saw them departing, many knew him and ran afoot thither of, out of all the cities. And out went them and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measured, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, so their heart was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was, and whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets, and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. In this passage, you see the compassion of Christ on full display. Like I said earlier, if all God ever gave us was the gift of salvation, that would be sufficient. But God being loving and saving our souls and doing so at such a high price to himself, giving his only begotten son to die on the cross for our redemption and our salvation 
if he were willing to go that far just to save us, doesn't it follow that he would also care for us? That he would protect us, that he would meet our needs, that he would sustain us, that he would heal us, that he would comfort us. Doesn't it follow that he would be compassionate upon our needs here in this world in addition to our need to be in the next world? You see, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, the Bible says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God was willing to give his only begotten son for our salvation, wouldn't it follow that he would also be concerned about our well-being, about our physical well-being, about our emotional well-being, about our psychological well-being? If Jesus loved us, the Bible says in verse 34 that he was moved with compassion. He being moved with compassion toward us gave himself on the cross for our sins to redeem us. Wouldn't he have compassion on what we're struggling with today? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we could come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what it's like. You ever see somebody experiencing a pain or a trauma that you too have experienced in the past? Doesn't that touch you? Don't you say, oh, I know know what you're going through. I've been through this. Let me help. Don't you have that kind of compassion? I hope you do. Sometimes we're having better days than others. I get that. The Lord has been through what you've been through. He has compassion on you. You see, the gift of salvation is the greatest gift ever given. If we can trust the Lord because of that gift and for that gift, we can trust him to have compassion on us. The Apostle Paul knew and understood that the gift of salvation that God had given him was the greatest thing that he had. And so he was willing. He said in Philippians chapter 4, I, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. I know how to, how to sit at banquet and I know how to have nothing. I am instructed in all things to be both full and hungry. Amen. The apostle Paul, when he was on a day where his bank account was zero, And he didn't even have enough money to buy a McDouble from McDonald's. He knew he was blessed. And on a day when he got his tax return, and so he could go buy a ribeye, he knew he was blessed. Because the Apostle Paul understood that the gift of salvation given to him was the greatest thing he could ever receive. And he trusted the Lord beyond that. He trusted the Lord to take care of him while he was on this earth. And the Apostle Paul didn't have a very high standard for that. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes that the Lord told him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet Paul. Paul had problems. Paul had a recurring problem. 
Paul had a problem that just would not go away, and he asked the Lord to take it away from him. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Does that mean that the Lord is not going to take away our problems because his grace and his salvation was sufficient? Not at all. Paul said that he would glory in his weakness and in his infirmity. He was made strong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Why? Because when Paul was at his weakest, when Paul was brought to a place where he knew he could not fix it, when Paul no longer had the solution, Paul was able to see the glory of God and the power of God come through before him. Amen. There's an interesting thing happening in our world today. Lightning bugs are coming back. Have y'all seen any lately? Yeah. I have. There's some that live out here on the property. Come to the church after dark. Yeah. Saw one across the street from my house. I hadn't seen a lightning bug in 20 years. Growing up in East Texas, they were all over the place. That sun went down and there were little yellow glows everywhere. We would go catch a jar full of them. That's why we don't have them anymore. We'd go catch a jar full of them and sit in our bedroom and turn the lights out and let the glow of the lightning bugs in our jar illuminate our room. Our kids, I would say, will never know, the, but maybe they will because they're coming back. What is it about lightning bugs, though? You never see them in the daytime. Is that because they don't exist during the daytime? It's because you can only see the light when you're in the darkness. You can only see the power of God. When you're brought to a place where you no longer see your own power. That's right. The Lord's grace did not end at the cross. God's love for you was not completed at the cross. God's love for you began at the cross. That may sound a little weird when you say it like that. Don't take me out of context here. God did not quit loving you at the cross. No. God, at the cross, did not say, I did my part. His walk with you, your walk with him, just began. Amen. His love carries on. Yes. We should be steadfast in what the Lord has given us. We should be satisfied with what the Lord has given us. Because he's loved us far beyond measure and given us far beyond anything we could claim to deserve. We should also know that the Lord loves us and has compassion on us. So we should trust that compassion and be comforted by that compassion. In Mark chapter 6, we see the compassion of Christ on full display. We see that this compassion demonstrated as the Lord gave his disciples rest. And he will give you rest. We see this compassion demonstrated as he taught the multitudes. And we see this compassion demonstrated as he fed the multitudes. Mm -hmm. Jesus loves you. God loves you. You are loved. And because Jesus loves you, because God loves you, he gives you rest. Some of y'all, it's between 11 and 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But he gives you rest. I know. I have the same I have the same issue. Okay? It's all right. He gives you rest. In verse 31, 
And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. The disciples had been sent out two by two to preach the gospel, to cast out devils, to heal. And they wound up ministering to many, possibly to thousands. And their days were so busy that there were so many people coming, coming to hear the gospel, coming to be healed, coming to have devils cast out, coming to experience the power of Christ, that they did not even have time to stop and have lunch. When I was still interviewing for State Farm, I visited with an agent down in uh, Temple. And I said, do you have any advice, something you wish you had known that then that you know now? She says, yes, remember to eat. And I said, ma'am, this is not going to be a problem. She says, you will be surprised. She said, this job will get so hectic that you will spend 12 hours in your office and realize that you have not stopped to eat. I can't imagine that I would be that excited about selling insurance that I would forget to eat. But for her, it happened. But it happens sometimes. Have you ever gotten so busy you hadn't had time to have a meal? You missed lunch? You ever worked through lunch? The disciples, they didn't even have time to stop and eat. No time to rest, no time to sleep. They had had a busy week. And they come back to Jesus and they report to Jesus and they tell Jesus everything they preached, everything they did, that they had cast out devils, that they had healed many. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to go to a desert place for a while. Y'all need some rest. Jesus loved his disciples. Yes. He gave them rest. They didn't get much of it. As soon as that boat gets across the lake and they step off the, they step off the boat, the crowds are there again. Yeah. But he took them away so that they could rest. Reminds me of Psalm 127, verse 2, which says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Psalm 127 begins by saying, Unless the Lord build the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. In other words, if God ain't in it, it ain't happening. Okay? Unless the builders, unless the Lord build the house, the builders labor in vain. Now, we think of building a house. We think of building a building. But a house can mean a family. A house can mean an entity. Yes. Whatever you're building, unless God's building it, your labor is in vain. Right. In business today, you've got to outwork the other guy. You've got to, early bird gets the worm. You've got to wake up before everybody else does. You've got to be willing to put in the long hours. I read a quote by Mark Cuban. He says, when you, Mark Cuban says, when you reach that pinnacle of success, when your business has made it, when when it is going and you have finally got it established, then every sacrifice you made will be worth it. The relationships you've sacrificed, the friendships you've sacrificed, the pleasures, the life moments you've missed out on will be worth it when you have built your business and you see your empire grow. And so people follow Mark Cuban. They wake up early and they work and they obsess 
and they allow their marriages and their relationships to crumble because my empire is more important. They're going to find that unless the Lord built the empire in the first place, it will never stand. Some people stay up all night worrying about things. That's the watchman. The watchman, unless the Lord keeps the house, the watchman waketh in vain. I've got to constantly keep an wa- eye on everything. I've got to constantly watch everything. I've got to constantly check the balance. I've got to constantly, I've got to check up on this. I've got to verify that this happened. Right? They never rest. The Bible says that there is so much of your life that you cannot control. And so Psalm 127 comes to the conclusion. It is vain. Pointless, empty, wasteful for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. There is so much in your life you cannot control. Trust the Lord to control that. Trust the Lord to see to it. Trust the Lord to keep your city. Trust the Lord. To build your empire. Trust the Lord to provide for your family. Trust the Lord to make it work out. Yes, we wake up and we go to work in the morning. Yes, we manage our money. Yes, we pay our bills. But you know what? God gave the farmer the ability to sow the seed. He gave the farmer the ability to harvest the seed. God expects the farmer to sow his seed. God expects the farmer to harvest his seed. That farmer cannot make the seed grow. That farmer has to trust God Amen. to make the seed grow. Mm-hmm. Plant your crops. Water your crops. But go to bed at night. Get okay. you some rest. Because the Lord gives his beloved sleep. Yes. God loves you. He did not create you to work yourself to death. And to worry yourself to death. God did not create you to sit in a cubicle for 12 hours a day, staring at a computer screen, obsessing over company mission statements. He did not create you to go into a salt mine and kill yourself for a corporation that would replace you the day after you died. Honor him and glorify him with your life. Yes. Yes, we work. Yes, we manage our finances. But it's God who provides and takes care of us. Trust that. He has given you the gift of sleep, the gift of rest because he loves you. He gave us the Sabbath day to rest and to enjoy his fullness. Take that free gift. Express that faith. You trust the Lord, you'll be able to rest. But the rest that the Lord gives us, his compassion, in his compassion, he gives us rest. That rest that he gives us moves beyond a physical rest. There's a spiritual rest as well. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest in your souls. So maybe you got a good nap yesterday. You slept well last night. 
Do you have rest in your soul? Are you at peace here in your heart? Are you at peace in your soul? Mm -hmm. Jesus offers that. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus offers spiritual rest. The people that Jesus preached to had undue burdens placed upon them by the religious leaders of their day. The religious leaders of their day required them to live up to a certain legalistic standard. You had to give and donate at a certain level. You had to be a member of the right social class. If you were down there in the poor class, in the indigent class, I think that's the word we use these days. If you're down in the indigent class, there must be something wrong with you. God must be punishing you for something. You wouldn't be indigent if you were pleasing God. And John the Baptist says, huh, there's a concept for you. You had to be in the right social class. And this was unattainable for many. Many could not live up to that level. Many could not give to that level. Many could not live in that class. I mean, it's exhausting. I can't drive the church in a hoopty. People think I'm trash. I've got to buy a newer car. I've got to wear a nice suit. I've got to have my... I've never been able to fix my hair. I've got to have my hair fixed a certain way. The Lord takes my hair. That is one less thing I have to worry about. Now, Jessica may not appreciate that as much, but I do. We have to live up to this certain level, and it's exhausting, and many just cannot do it. And Jesus told them, he said, quit worrying about all that. You come to me, I will give you rest. You will no longer have to struggle to attain a certain legalistic level. You will no longer have to give until it hurts. It hurts me to hear preachers say that. Give until it hurts. How much are you giving, preacher? Nah, I'm not going to go down that road. You do not have to give until it hurts. You don't have to be a member of the right social class. Just follow Jesus and believe him. Many Christians today are in the same struggle. Many Christians say that they trust the Lord. But they're still trying to live up to a certain legalistic level. All right? They try to fit into a certain social class. They spend so much time and energy trying to make it look like they have it all together. Never admitting any struggles or never admitting any brokenness. Because heaven forbid we should admit any brokenness. Because it might admit that we have a flaw. And if we have a flaw, everybody might think that we're really a sinner in here hiding. We're all sinners in here hiding. All right? We're all broken. But there are so many Christians today that are afraid to admit that. They're afraid to go to their church and say, my kid has gone left. I'm afraid to tell you my kid has gone left. I can't mention it. I tried this morning. I tried from this pulpit to pour my heart out and say, this is what I want you to pray for. I can't bring myself to do it. This has been ingrained. This is years of modern American church membership. All right? You're in the same boat? I know, because I know what y'all tell me privately. And then I know how it gets translated into a prayer request in front of the congregation. And then I want to pray for you. But I want to respect where you are. So I'm not going to sit there and pour your dirty laundry out. 
as I pray for you in front of everybody? All right. But where does that fear come from? This is generations of church culture telling us that if you're broken, you're bad. If you're broken, you're a hypocrite. If you're broken, you did something wrong. You know why your kid went left? It's because you were a bad parent. Because the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. That verse has to do with vocational training. It does. The Bible does tell us to bring us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The Bible never promises us that if we do that, our children will obey. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what the Bible says. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So the kid runs away from the rod of correction. So he can hang on to his foolishness. Adam and Eve. Three sons. One murdered the other one. There are other biblical examples. You know, you got Jacob. I mean, he had a personal encounter with God. His sons did some pretty whack things. They saw one of their brothers into slavery. One of them had an affair with his daughter-in-law then tried to have her killed when she came up pregnant. Was Jacob a bad father? I don't know. I know that the scriptures are full of examples of foolish children of godly people who go left. The prodigal son. Yeah. All right. The brother wants his inheritance. He wants to go live righteous living. I'm off on a tangent now. And you're having kid problems. That's not because you're a failure as a parent. If you're a failure as a parent, we all are. Yeah. Not a single one of y'all can say that I lived, I, I listened to the Dr. James Dobson and Focus on the Family broadcast and I successfully did every single thing that they ever said. No. We're all broken. You're having a health problem. God's not punishing you for something. All right? This is the human experience. If you're struggling, you, you are really struggling with this problem. And you prayed about it, and God hasn't given you the answer you're looking for. Maybe he hasn't given you an answer. Your faith is not flawed. Mm -mm. Had a family back in East Texas. The wife, more than anything, she wanted to have a baby. And people told her that if she believed hard enough, she would have that baby. Because after all, Brother Jim, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm glad you interpreted that scripture the way you did. That scripture doesn't mean if you delight in the Lord, if you missed Sunday school this morning, that scripture doesn't mean if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you everything your heart desires. It means if you delight in the Lord, he will plant the desires in your heart. I've, I don't think I have ever heard that better spoken. But they'll use that verse and say, if you really delighted in the Lord, you'd have a baby. And so this lady comes to me and she goes, Pastor, what am I doing wrong? And I said, I don't know. Then I asked her, and her husband was with her. I said, how's y'all's marriage doing? Not too good. I said, so my prescription is, you two go on a retreat, take a vacation together, and remember what it is you love about each other. 
and y'all delight in that. And they did. Did God give them a baby? Not yet. At that point. Later on, they adopted. And then they had a baby. <laughs> she came to me saying that she was angry at God. She was angry at God because she had done all the faith stuff that everybody told her to do and God did not come through for her. And she spent so many years hiding that struggle because we can't show our brokenness to each other. That she finally broke. <clears throat> Y'all remember the, the Christian group DC Talk? They had a song out called What If I Stumble? And at the beginning of that song, you hear this scratchy recording of an old man saying that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. And for years I thought he was talking about Christians that go to church on Sunday and then they go out to the club Sunday night. It's not what he was talking about. That quote was actually from Brennan Manning. And his criticism, his confrontation was not to Christians who stumble in sin. But these are Christians who proclaim the grace of God on Sunday morning and then live life as if grace does not exist. They try to work themselves into heaven, and they expect you to work yourself into heaven. Mm -hmm. That's what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. This doesn't mean you should go to the club. It means your reason for not going to the club changes. Yeah. You don't go to the club because you love Jesus, mm -hmm. and you don't want to trample on the love he's given you. Amen. You're not abstaining from the club in order to dodge God's wrath. It's like being in a loving marriage. See, I don't get up and go to work and make a living and bring home the bacon, turkey bacon, <laughs> because I'm afraid that Jessica's going to divorce me if I don't. I don't come straight home after work and not go out with my friends. Because I'm afraid Jess is going to get mad at me if I come home after 6 o'clock. I go to work and bring home the turkey bacon. Because I love Jessica. And there's nothing that breaks my heart more than to see her staring in front of a computer screen at a bank balance trying to figure out how we're going to get through the rest of the month. Amen. I come straight home after work because I don't want her to ever have that insecure feeling of wondering, where is my loved one? Where is my husband? It's not because I'm afraid that she's going to kick me out or she's going to make my life horrible. I'm not afraid of losing half my stuff, all right? I love her. That's how a good marriage should be. We honor each other, not because we're afraid of each other or that we force each other to, but because we love each other and we want to. We honor God, not because we're afraid he's going to strike us with a lightning bolt, but because we're in a loving relationship with him. Amen. We want to live with him. Hey, yes. The grace of God is not a license to sin. It's the reason you don't want to. That's right. 
when you realize how much love God has poured out on you. You realize how little you have to do with his salvation that he's given you and the blessings he's poured out in your life. And when you come to that realization, you suddenly are able to let go of it all. Just like my air conditioner let go of all the condensation last night and it flowed out into my floor. Just, it was just a moment, just... And the air conditioner felt better and so did I. You're able to let it go. You're able to rest. And that's what God gives you. Because he loves you. Many Christians today feel they must work harder for the Lord. Au contraire. He loves you. He gives you rest. Compassion of the Lord is demonstrated by his teaching. We see in verse 34 that when Jesus came out, he saw much people, was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus saw his people being destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so he lovingly went to them and taught them so that they could be saved. God in flesh himself went and told people how to be spared, how to be delivered because he loves them. He has given us his word, his teaching in the Bible. And his spirit to minister to us as we read and we hear the preaching of his word. Because he loves us. He fed the 5,000. Because he sees our need for sustenance and our physical needs. And he meets those as well. God loves you. He's compassionate upon you. He feels your hurts. He knows your burden. He sees you and what you're going through. He's compassionate, and he'll minister to that. You quit trying to hold everything in. You quit trying to make it happen on your own. You quit worrying about the thing that you really have no control over to begin with. You learn just to trust the Lord and just to rest in him.